All right. Well, welcome to Vintage. We're going to continue our James series. We're in chapter three. We're flying now, right? Chapter three, we're taking off. Uh, I want to encourage you, if you have your Bibles, pull out James. Chapter three, we're going to be in verse one. But I wanted to just say thank you. Um, as a friend, as one of your pastors, thank you for supporting me in this terrible vision called Run, Drew, Run. Have you guys heard about Run, Drew, Run yet? So going into this year, I really felt the Spirit of God, not, not out loud tell me, but it was very clear in my heart that, Drew, you're supposed to run a marathon this year. Um, if you know anything about me, I'm a former college athlete. I weigh 230 plus pounds, give or take, right? I've had multiple knee surgeries, and I think running is stupid, all right? So we're on the same page here. Heavy boy, running for fun. That doesn't make any sense at all. But I made it, God made it clear to me, I want you to run a marathon. I thought that was like a literal thing, but actually I've learned this year it's very metaphorical. Has this year not felt like a marathon, right? One that you're like, I didn't sign up for. Take the bib back. I don't want anything to do with it. But, but I'm learning in this journey of running. And yes, I'm still running. People keep asking, are you still running? Yes. I haven't finished the marathon. Why do you got to bring it up, right? It's painful. Um, but part of the, the metaphor of a marathon, it's why Paul says it all the time in Scripture, right? Run the race with what? Endurance. One foot in front of the other. It's not about the time that you get in the marathon. It's that you show up and that you take one step in front of the next, in front of the next. And so I'm learning, for me, God's been speaking to me. I don't listen to podcasts while I run. I really try to listen to him. I grumble a lot of the time. Um, and God's teaching in my heart that that doesn't help me run faster or make it stop, right? It's actually looking to him, which is the song that, that we just sang. James has been telling us, as the early church, you're living as sent ones, and as you're sent, make sure you're running the race with endurance one step in front of the other. Well, this month in July, I have a new goal for me. It's called 50 times two. My goal is to run 50 miles this month, which I've not done a 50 mile a month yet. And so that's one of my goals. My other goal is I wanna get 50 claps along the way while I run. And you're like, what does that mean? Well, what it means is I've noticed something. And you're running in July and you live in Eldorado Hills, your life is a bummer. You know that, right? Like you live on the surface of the sun. And when I run by people, especially so far this month, they look miserable, right? They're like, why did my wife make me do this? Or why am I having to do this? It's so hot. I don't want to be here. And I've noticed this. When I run by people and I just say, you got this. And I just start clapping for them while I'm running. You know what they do? Well, it depends who they are, right? My goal is that they would clap back. That's my goal. I got two claps yesterday, guys, so I'm making progress, right? And I got three. I guess that doesn't count, Sienna. But still, while I'm running, I've noticed this. They start to smile. Like, they look angry. They look mad. Like, why am I doing this? And then you go, you got this, and you start clapping and cheering for them, and they're like, oh, I, I do got this. I can do this. This isn't as bad as I thought it was. And I think that's part of why we gather on Sunday mornings, so whether you're here in the vintage living room or at your home, don't miss this. I'm clapping for you. I think part of our call as sent ones is to clap for each other. The power of positivity really matters. In fact, as kingdom people that live in this empire of brokenness, make no mistake, is there ever a time more than today that we need to cheer each other on? Amen? Use our words to encourage people to take the next step because it's way too easy to just quit. Why? Because running a marathon is stupid. That's why. Because life is hard sometimes, it's difficult, and we want to just pack it in and go home. But today we're going to look at the power of the tongue. Part of why we had you not sing in the first song is how awkward was that, right, to not sing the first song? 
And yet I'm just dancing and skipping around because that's what I do. But my hope is that the joy of the Lord is your strength. We saw that in Nehemiah. And this morning as we look at the text that we see the power of the tongue, which can be used to destroy, or I do believe it can be used to lift each other up. And so these are the definitions we've been looking at so far. In James, we've been in this really a bigger section that says faith without works is dead. And we've used these definitions here that faith minus works is no faith. That faith plus works is actually false faith. And yet faith leading to works is what authentic faith is. That's what we've been looking at these next few weeks. And so today I want to add a definition to all of our James databanks. It's what is the work of faith. The work of faith for me is anything that we do with confidence in God. Here's the list of, of some of the imperatives so far in the book of James. He's given us countless things that we should be doing. All these things, joy in trials, wisdom, being steadfast, don't blame God, be quick to hear, slow to speak, put away filthiness, receive the word of God, be doers, not just hearers, bridle the tongue. Now we're coming back to that this week. Visit the orphans and widows, keep unstained from the world, don't show partiality, love your neighbors, show mercies to each other. This is a picture of authentic faith. And for all of us, if we look at this picture compared to our lives, you know what we see? We see that all of us need some encouragement in our ongoing spiritual transformation. James says, faith without works is dead. And the big idea for us today is that words are works. Have we recognized that? The way we use our words can be works for the kingdom movement that we're all a part of. And so James has made it clear that faith without works is dead. But that today we see that our words are actually works that inevitably will flow from the faith that's in our heart. And because there's three things that James is gonna tell us, and, and I'm just giving you a heads up right now, we're covering a lot of ground. So I'm going to talk a little fast. There's also things I'm going to not cover. You're going to have to go back to your life group and circle back, or you can always send me an email if you have more questions at michaeldvintagegrace.org, and I'd be more than happy to answer them. Here's the three things. Because words are works, we should carefully consider whether or not we want to be a teacher. We have to count the cost, consider the call. We have to understand the incredible potential that every one of us has with our words. We have to also see that our words are displaying something. They have the power to display our faith in God or actually to destroy others as well. And, and so church, as you look at the text today, you should come with an appropriate amount of fear and trembling. I do, as a teacher. Every Sunday, every time we look at this word, God is showing us a mirror of what faith in him looks like, and we see our lives, and when there's a disconnect, we have to deal with that, and we have to look to God and say, God, how can we deal with that? And so words are works. Here's the text. James chapter 3, starting in verse 1. There's a lot here. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with a greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at those ships also. They're so large, and they're driven by such strong winds, yet they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, but it boasts in great things. Oh, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set amongst our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird and reptile and sea and creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. And with it, we bless our Lord and our Father. And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. Oh, my brothers, these things ought not to be so. 
Does a spring pour forth the same opening from fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives and grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Spirit of God, as we come before you, as we look to you, the Son, we ask that you would speak to us, that you would show us who you are, that you would reveal to us who we are, and that you would guide us, that you would woo us back to yourselves, and that, Spirit, that you would not only transform us for our good, but for the good of others that need to not only see the gospel in us, but they need to hear it from us. And so, Spirit of God, we don't only need heart transplants, we need tongue transplants. Spirit of God, speak for your glory and for our good, we pray. And everybody said, amen. So here's where we're going. Again, we're covering a lot. Here's where James starts. He says, brothers. This is the last time in this chunk, paragraph after paragraph, he's been starting, my brothers, my brothers, my brothers. Why does he say brothers? Anybody remember? Because they're believers. Because he cares deeply. They're family. He says, my brothers, I don't want you to miss this. Here's been the flow so far. There's this sin of partiality. He's used brothers to start that paragraph. Every one of us has partiality in us, whether we know it or not. The kingdom of God combats the empire, the brokenness of this world. So pay attention, brothers. Pay attention to your talk, which is cheap if it doesn't actually match your life. What you say, if it's disconnected, in fact, this is the way Dallas Willard says that the longest journey of your life is the 12 inches between your head and your heart. If you have a really long neck, it's 18, Willard says. I think the shortest journey of your life is from your heart to your mouth. You recognize that? That it takes really long to think rightly to then penetrate your heart, to have it actually transform who you are, and yet how quickly out of the heart does the mouth speak, Jesus tells us. And so he says, brothers, pay attention. The sin of partiality, talk is cheap. Your work is gonna flow from authentic faith. If you believe, you will look like believers. You'll get in the boat and you'll row. Remember the paddle last week and last two weeks? You'll row with faith and with works. And this week, here's what he says. Pay attention how you lead people with your words. Yes, words are work. Yes, you I think it's going to be a temptation for all of us to say, well, again, Drew's going to tell us to be careful if we want to be a teacher. Here's the good news. I'm not a teacher. That's true, but actually you are. You know there's people that are watching you in your cubicle. You're like, yeah, I don't have cubicles. I work from home now. Yeah, they're paying attention to what you write on Facebook. No, I don't have Facebook. They're paying attention to what you say at the mailbox. Yeah, I don't go get the mail. Yeah, your kids are watching. Yeah, I don't have kids. See, we have excuse after excuse after excuse. But every one of us, I believe, in this room and in your living room, every one of you is a leader. Pay attention to how you lead. And you know how you lead? You lead with your mouth. And where does your mouth come from? It flows from the heart. And we're going to zoom in on teachers in just a moment. And, and again, I was tempted on this holiday weekend to give this text to someone else. But I figured since I am technically the lead pastor, I should teach this text myself. Because I take it seriously. We don't take teaching lightly. And so that's where James starts. He says, brothers, but he goes into this. He says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. Teachers for them was like this really special calling. Most teachers have an expertise in a given subject. In the church, our teachers, do they matter? Absolutely. Go read Acts or Romans or 1 Corinthians or Ephesians. There is a role for teachers. I believe that God calls teachers, pastors, leaders, and shepherds, and he calls us to be in those roles. Why? Remember, they didn't have the written word of God. And so all of their lessons were learned in their theology. Where did it come from? It came from teachers. It came from the, the spoken word. It came from sitting around a campfire and having a conversation about how great our God is. And so the role of teacher was extremely important for the early church. I'm not saying it's not as important today, but you do recognize that there's better preachers you could be watching online from your living room than me. I recognize that, so thanks for being here. 
You can get teaching wherever you want, but for them, there was one place. It was at the synagogue. It was in the home. It was at the campfire. And so teachers were extremely important. And as a result, you had people growing up that said, I want to be a teacher someday. Teachers are really respected. Now, I'm not saying that's true today. I'm saying in their town, it was true. In their town, I want to be a pastor someday. Now, again, for me, I first said I want to be a pastor when I was eight years old, which means what? It means that I really loved my pastor. Means as I watched my pastor, Ron was his name, Ron Cundle, I think of him often. I got to see what it meant to be a shepherd, what it meant to handle the word of God, what it meant to love people. And I was a kid, but I watched that. And I think that's true in James's day and age. There were young kids, young men, young people that were watching teachers. They said, I wanna be a teacher. And so here's what James says. Be really careful if you wanna be a teacher for the wrong reasons. Being a teacher isn't as much fun as you think it is. It's kind of like my golf game. When I play golf, I say it this way. My golf shot always makes somebody happy. It's just usually not me. Or being an umpire, right? After every call in a game, you used to play this game in America called baseball. You remember that back in the good old days? Every umpire makes a call, and what happens? One team thinks it's the best call ever, and one team is upset. He says, guys, if your motive to be a teacher is for power or pride or prestige, then you're totally missing the boat about what it means to be a teacher. That's not what being a teacher is all about. He says it very specifically, not many of you should become teachers because you want to be a teacher for the wrong reason. You want people to look at you, and yet our role as teachers, like the moon metaphor for Israel, is to be a moon. We don't have any light in us as teachers. We reflect the light back to the sun, amen? So he says, not many of you should be teachers because your motives are impure. They're not about the glory of God and about making him king and making him seen. You want people to see you. And so he says specifically, not many of you should because of your bad motives. Then he goes on and says, brothers, don't you know that those of us who teach will be judged to greater strictness? Don't you know that? Jesus says it in Luke chapter 12. He gets done talking to his disciples and he says it this way in this context of everyone. This is Luke chapter 12 at the end, verse 48. He says this. Don't you know that everyone who much is given of him will be much required and of him of whom they entrust more, that much more will be demanded. So I don't know about you, but often in tests, I always want to know what's the bare minimum I could do to get by in a test. Here's what he says, you teachers, your test is a lot harder. Why? Because you're leading people. You're telling people to follow you as you follow Christ. When you get up and preach, you're you're representing God. Now make no mistake, every preacher, every teacher in the world today and in James's world, they are sinners saved by grace. They are saints who still struggle with sin and their job is to be a moon and say, don't look at me, look at Yahweh. That's their job. My definition of a pastor, when I was in seminary, I came up with this definition. Pastors are professional sinners saved by grace. What makes us professional? For many of us, we went to seminary. That's the difference between me and Lee. Lee is a pastor in the room today. It's too easy. He's pastoring his family. He's pastoring his life group. He's also pastoring our life group leaders. Lee is just as much of a pastor as I am at Vintage Grace. What's the difference? I'm a pro sinner. He's a normal sinner. Amen? I've got my seminary degree. And again, I don't think you need to have a seminary degree. That's what he says. Just be really careful. When you teach as pastors, recognize that you are going to be judged. Hebrews 13, 17 says this, obey your leaders, submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy. You know I love that word. Not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. I talk to too many pastors. They complain about being a pastor. My encouragement to them is to to stop. Guys, our role as pastors, as teachers, as shepherds, and I believe that for me as a teacher, but I do believe for all of us because we're all teaching too. But don't miss this. 
Our role is to point people towards he who is greater. And he says, if you're a teacher, you will be judged with greater strictness, which means my job as a teacher is to point you towards the good shepherd. Does that make sense? That's my job. There's one good shepherd at Vintage Grace, and it's no one on staff. His name's Jesus. I will fail you, you will fail each other. We don't use that as an excuse. But make no mistake, as teachers, we must be careful. Carefully consider if you're going to teach, because you will be judged to a higher standard. Why? Because people are following you. We must take that seriously. He goes on, he says this. Here's the third reason why you shouldn't be a teacher. Bad motives, stricter judgment. Here's the third one. For we all stumble in many ways. Who sins in this room? Raise your hand. Just because you're in your living room doesn't mean you can't raise your hand. Again, we, we joke, I'm a two-hand, right? He's, we all stumble, all will sin, all will fall short of the glory of God. And as a result of that, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man. What he's saying is, you will stumble. There are no perfect mans. No one is righteous, no, not one, Paul says in Romans chapter three. Also able to bridle his whole body. He says, teachers, be careful. Why? Because what you do as a teacher is you speak, you write, you lead, and as you do that, you know the hardest part of your body to control. The hardest part of your body to control happens to be the exact part of your body you need to use most frequently as a teacher. So if this is a struggle for you, don't be a teacher because you know what? You're gonna be up front. You know what that means? You're gonna stumble. You're gonna make mistakes. You're gonna blow it, which means we as teachers must be the first to repent. He tells us no one is righteous, no, not one. And so the third reason he says carefully consider whether or not you want to be a teacher is simply this. You do recognize you're going to make mistakes along the way. You're going to have to go back to your wife and to your kids and to your life group and maybe your church and say, oh, I missed it. I misspoke. I missed that part. I, I, I erred in sin. And so he says carefully consider. Teachers, be careful. Now, that doesn't mean don't teach. It just means carefully consider. What you say matters. Here's just some communication troubles. I found this on a church's blog. 10 things. Maybe you struggle with just one of them. Maybe that's it for you. I think what James is saying is we all struggle with all of these. Lying, sowing discord, gossip, slander, breaking confidence. And we read those, we're like, oh, I'm glad I don't struggle with those. In fact, here's the best part. Even as you're reading this list right now, some of you are going, oh man, I wish so-and-so was watching this sermon. Because we forget that James is talking to us. That we have a temptation to guard our hearts, to say something ill about someone else, that we forget that we're kingdom residents first and empire residents second. Cursing, blasphemy, bad language, contentious speech, unbelief, which is promoted through our speech. In fact, I even added bad theology. I think bad theology is speech. Again, why teachers are so important, to learn the word of God, to help us learn the word of God for ourselves so we might have good theology, something we practice at Vintage Grace. It's, it's part of my passion. Ever since I was a, a Bible student, I used to teach at the seminary. And part of that, especially in the undergrad, I taught BBST, how to read the Bible, how to interpret the Bible. Why? Because we believe in author's intent. As a preacher, I hope you don't ever leave on a Sunday morning and go, oh man, I know what Drew thinks. I hope you leave and say, I know what James thinks. I know what God tells us. Why? Because what God thinks is a lot more important than what I think. Amen? Okay, come on, church. What God thinks is a lot more important than what any man thinks. Amen? Amen. Like, don't miss this. That's what he's saying. That's our passion as a church. It's why life groups matter. Finding the logic and flow. Why did James say this? What is he trying to tell us? And yet we live in a world where we're getting news and information from Facebook and the internet and the news. And can we just chill for a second? If there was ever a time I've said in James for a time that we put the word of God in our hearts, it's now. It's now. And so we have to think about how we think. And then because what comes out of our heart comes out of our mouth. 
that when we put the word of God in our heart, that it combats the lying, the discord, the gossip, the slander. It combats all these things in our head and then ultimately in our heart. And that's what comes out through our mouth. And yet every one of us has these issues of communication. So James says, if you want to be a teacher, you better make sure that you're leaning into all of these things. That you're laying your heart before the Spirit and saying, Spirit of God, change me. John the Baptist said, less of me, more of you. David said, give me a clean heart that I might know you and fear you. Give me that heart transplant so that's what comes out of my mouth. That's the first part of the first part of the sermon. The second part of part one is simply this. There's incredible potential in the power of the tongue. He says this, the tongue is so small, but it boasts of great things. Often we see the word boast, we think of that as a bad way to use the tongue, right? This is not used in a negative way of boasting. I actually played soccer with a guy years ago. He was phenomenal. People say, oh, so-and-so is so arrogant. I'm like, he's not arrogant. He's just that good. He's not arrogant at all. If you get to know him and talk to him, he's just quiet, so you assume he's being arrogant. He's just afraid to talk to you because he doesn't like people. Maybe he's smarter than the rest of us. He's not, he's not boasting. The word boasting we think of as this negative thing. In this context, he's just saying the tongue, so small, has the power to do such great things. He's just stating a fact. He's saying the tongue is small, but it boasts. The tongue is a litmus test. That's been the beauty of trials. That's what we've been seeing in the book of James. The trials reveal our faith. Well, guess what else reveals our faith? Our tongue. Because what comes out of our heart goes out of our mouth. He says trials reveal your faith and it's a gift from God, but so too does the tongue. Think about how you speak, what you speak about. When you're with people, what are you doing to them and with them? Are we clappers? Are we encouragers with our tongue? Because it has the power to do great things. And so James gives us illustrations. Part of why I've been loving preaching through James is because James does all the work for the preacher. He literally gives us the illustration every week. So he gives us two this week. In this part, he says, look at the power of the tongue. The tongue reveals your heart. It shows you who you are. And if you really want to be honest, it's kind of like one of those moments. And so he says it's small, but it's big. Here's what he says. If we put bits into our mouth, now I'm not a horse person. I'm actually afraid of animals. You know that, right? Like animals scare me. I I love animals, specifically chickens, pigs, lobsters, and cows. Those are my favorite animals. And yet I think I fell off a horse when I was a kid, and so I got all this PTSD I got to deal with. And yet the horse, horses can be what, up to 2,200 pounds? According to Google, I wouldn't know because I don't touch them, right? But I asked my friends, I said, hey, would you give me a horse bit? And so you've got this huge beast of an animal, 2,200 pounds, and now here's this little bit, and it goes in their mouth. I got germ issues, but you know, I did it wrong. Thank you. I see horse people in the room, right? And this big old animal, and yet what it does is it guides and it directs. And so James says, look at a horse bit. The horse bit is like the tongue. He gives us the illustration. It goes into the mouth of horses so that they obey us, so they guide the whole bodies as well. They guide us one way or the other. He says, not only that, but look at the rudder of a ship. It's so small compared to the vastness, the the big nature of what a ship is, and yet though they are large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So you've got these different pieces. You've got the big item, the horse or the ship, and the small little reality of what's being led. Church, I don't want us to miss, James, I don't want us to miss, the words that we have are the works of God for kingdom movement. And although our tongue is small, it is a powerful reality and force. Jesus designed it that way. He says, they'll know you're my disciples by the way that you love one another. Love is actions, but love is also words. Have you noticed that? 
Love is actions, but it's also words. People will ask me all the time, why does vintage do such and such? Why do we do this or that? And you know, I find great joy in saying, because God loves you. But it can't just be the actions apart from the words. In the same way, it can't just be the words apart from the actions. It's gotta be both, and that's what he says. So also the tongue is a small member, but it boasts of great things. Now there's a third part of this that I think sometimes we can read and miss. We get the illustration like, yep, it makes sense, James, thanks so much, you're brilliant. And he's just using live things that they would be using in their day and age. And so here's what he goes. He says, but don't miss that there's a guiding nature to these tools. There's a guiding nature. Now, again, you hear me say, church, I think words can determine your destiny. And some of you guys start twitching, right? Because that sounds like easy believism. It sounds like, like something you'd hear on a talk show, not from the Bible. Don't miss this. I'm not talking about name it and claim it theology. I think that's from the pit of hell. I'm not talking about easy believism. I'm not talking about speaking things into existence. You're a man. God is God. You don't have that kind of power. But what I am saying is, have you noticed that the way in which you speak, it often leads you to where you're going? Why? Because it reveals what's in your heart. That on many levels, your words do determine your destiny. That I'm not kidding. Yesterday was a terrible run. First of all, I realized no one wants to run on the 4th of July. No one wants to run on Saturdays. And no one wants to run in July in Eldorado Hills. It's going to make it hard for me to get 50 clappers. But I did recognize I was clapping for people yesterday. That that one person, because I'm running, usually the other direction, right? And one person goes, hey, Drew. And I'm like, oh, man, I hope that was a good smile I gave them when I clapped, right? Because you don't know who's watching, But here's the reality. I made a decision going into that day that I was going to encourage, not just for the sermon illustration, but it works, but for my own heart. Why? Because what I say and what I do actually leads me forward with where I want to go and who I want to be. You're not speaking in existence, but what you're saying is, Lord, I want to see in my heart flow out through my mouth, and I do believe that our words determine our destiny because the way in which we're saying is actually what's leading us forward. The jockey is the one who's riding the horse. The pilot is the one who's guiding the ship, which, of course, leads us to ask the question, who's guiding our lives, who sits on the throne of our hearts? And way too often, who is that? Me. So our tongue reveals that about ourselves. It should cause us to pause. It should cause us to break our hearts. It should cause us to go back to God and say, God, I am so sorry I took your seat. I'm so sorry the word of God is not a plan in my heart because what's coming out of my heart through my mouth is Drew, and that's a problem. I'm not maximizing the incredible potential. No, instead, I'm, I'm lighting a match with incredible damage of a potential. Do you see potential as one way or the other, right? It's either potential gained or it's potential lost. And so that's what James does. He pivots here and says, guys, your tongue has the power not only for good works, not only to guide you for, not only for kingdom movement, but also has the power to destroy. It's incredibly powerful. And so what is being displayed through our tongues is what James would ask us. Is it destroying or is it building up? Either way, you know what the tongue's gonna do? It's gonna display our faith in God. A lot of it or... A little bit. And either way, we want more of it. We want more of our faith in God. And so this next part, let me just tell you, again, there's way too much to cover. So I'm going to read it and let James speak for himself. But I'm encourage you, sit with this, marinate with this over this week. How great is a forest that is set ablaze by such a small spark, a small fire, and the tongue is a fire it's a, a word of unrighteousness. He goes, this, the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set amongst our members, lots of parts of your body, but the tongue is small, and yet it stains the whole body, sets on fire the entire course of life, and it's set on fire by hell. It's used by Satan. Does he sound intense right now? 
Guys, we're stepping into fire season. There's firefighters in our living room today. We know how intense one little spark can be. The power can be displayed and the tongue can destroy. He goes on and says this, for every kind of beast and bird and reptile and sea and creature, it can be tamed and it has been tamed by mankind. You men are gifted. You can do so much, but you can't control the tongue. But no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. That word restless evil is the same that James uses in chapter one, verse eight. It's double-minded. Says one thing on one day, but depends who he's talking to. Then the next day he says this, and, and you say you love God on one moment, and then actually on Monday, this is why we fight as vintage grace. We do not wanna be Sunday Christians. It's not what it means to be a Christian. We gather on Sundays to look to the sun like we sing. We gather on Sundays to look up to say, God, you are victorious. You already have resurrected and you're resurrecting me and we have a victory. Why do we gather on Sunday and sing songs? We sing them vertically to God, but we also sing them horizontally to each other because every one of us forgets. We get overwhelmed by this world and we see fires out there. We get overwhelmed, we forget. And so we sing to each other just as much as we sing to Yahweh. We recognize our brokenness, and what we recognize is the tongue is a picture of our brokenness. It can't be contained. It is double-minded. Why? Because our heads are double-minded, because our hearts are double-minded, because we're in process until Jesus comes back and redeems all of us. Every one of us is experiencing what I call ongoing spiritual transformation, or OST, because ongoing spiritual transformation just takes too long to say. So we say, OST, that's what we're after as a church. That's not a Sunday thing. That's a Monday thing. That's a marriage thing. That, that's an office Tuesday thing. That's a Wednesday sports thing. That's an ongoing process saying, God, transform my head and my heart and my hands and my tongue. He goes on. He says this in verse 9, because with our tongue we bless the Lord our Father, and yet with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes cursing and blessing. And now don't miss this. When we say curse, that doesn't mean like you dropped a four-letter word. It doesn't even mean you're telling someone to buzz off. Cursing in their day and age, the way that James is using cursing, it means I see you and I damn you to hell. That's what it means. I think we can read over things so easily and quickly and say, ah, that, that's no big deal. No, what James is saying here is a huge deal. This is what he says. You Christians, you brothers, you sisters, with your tongue, you're gonna go to church and you're gonna praise God. And on Monday, you're gonna look at the very image bearers of the king. He's highlighting Genesis 126, and he's gonna tell them, not buzz off, he's gonna say, you get away from God. I pray that he damns you to eternity of hell. Who deserves that kind of a cursing? I do. I do. And so what James is saying here is, do you not recognize that you are called to be a blessing? You are called to bless people, and yet as double-minded humans that are living too much in the empire, not enough in the kingdom, this too often describes us. And he says, my brothers, these things ought not to be so. Jesus in Luke chapter six says this, bless those who curse you. In our economy, what do we do? We bless those who bless us. And we curse those who curse us. And yet in the kingdom of God, Jesus has turned the entire script upside down. He calls it an upside down kingdom. Why? Because we bless those who curse us. We Christians curse nobody. We recognize that we are far from God, but God in his grace and in his mercy came near to us, gave us life and invited us back into relationship with him. And so now we are sent to earth. Living sent is our theme of James. We are sent to bless, not to curse.
Church, are we seeing the power of our tongue today? He goes on again. James just gives us illustration after illustration after illustration. He's going to give us two different bodies of water, three different fruit trees to say the same thing. My brothers, we don't bless and then curse out of the same mouth. May we be blessers. Instead, he goes on and says, my brothers, does a spring forth from the same opening, both fresh water and salt water. When they were establishing residency in a town, they'd look for springs, and you didn't find a spring that had both and. It was one or the other. So church, who are we gonna be? Are we gonna be blessers or are we gonna be cursers? Those are the options. Again, that's what he says. He says, salt water or fresh water. He says, one more illustration. Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither then can a salt pond yield fresh water. He asks these two different questions and the answer to both of them is no. Can you get two types of waters out of the same spring? No. Can you get different types of fruit off the same tree? No. He's making it very clear for us. The power of God in your head and in your heart is gonna flow out of your hands and through your mouth. Does it make sense? James is making it so clear to us. But I think it's easier to read this and go, oh, well, you know what? Everybody struggles with the tongue. I guess I'm just like everybody else. Shucks. Does that sound James's tone? No, this is the power to destroy or the power to lift up. So who are we going to be? I think the implications for this text are vast and deep and wide, and I don't want us to rush through them and actually not reflect on them, that our words, because we say so many words in a given day, at least some of us. I'm a preacher, so I say a lot. So many words we say during the day, and our words, they might seem insignificant, they might not seem that important, and yet, please hear us as teachers, as leaders, as a church, they're extremely important. Their impact is far greater than I think any of us recognize, and James wants us to recognize. He wants us to see the small nature of the bit, and of the rudder, and of the spark, and recognize that words are works. How are you working what does it look like? I think the second implication is that our words are, are far too often doing major damage. And they're rooted in evil. Why are they rooted in evil? Because we have a heart issue, every one of us. That, that we think of words and we say, well, you know what? Sticks and stones, they'll break my bones, but names will never hurt me. That is one more lie from the pit of hell. Do you recognize that? Are we not seeing that in our day and age today? How painful words are? This binary thinking of either or instead of living in the tension of our world and saying, no, I'm actually a kingdom guy. That's who I am. Massive empire implications we've seen in the book of James. But I'm a kingdom guy first. And as kingdom guy, man, don't miss this. Your words matter and people are listening. They're reading. They're watching. And they far too often do major damage and they're rude and evil. But as Christians who have a heart transplant, what opportunity do we have today? Have you seen that? What opportunity do we have to use our words to be clappers of grace, encouragers of faith, offerers of mercy? That's what your words have the power to do. And I'm just speaking as a sinner saved by grace, a saint who struggles with sin, just like you. But man, I've experienced your encouragement. Run, Drew, run has made me want to quit over and over and over again. And by God's grace, yesterday morning, I laced up the shoes and I stepped forward and I clapped for people and they clapped for me. 
and we're in this journey and we have the power to do major damage on our journey with Jesus or we have the power to point people towards he who heals all things. The third implication is this, that our words ought to be a consistent expression of our faith in God. And church, I just added this. Actually, they already are. It's not just an opportunity. They are a picture of your faith in God or they're a picture of your lack of faith in God. COVID has been such a gift for our souls, has it not? Now, like every gift of trials, we want to get rid of it as fast as possible, but it reveals our faith. And for all of us, it reveals our lack of faith. Our words, if we did some examining today, which guess what, we're gonna do. Our words will actually reveal who we are. And so I, I just wanna throw up what that looks like for you and me. I actually got the, this next list from Todd Chapman, my, my pastor, my brother, my friend. And it's from his study through James. And he just took 10 different words. And I wanna give you an opportunity today to just do some examining. Because I also recognize if I give it as homework, only a few of you will do it. So I'm gonna give you homework now. In your living room is where you are. Here's 10 things, and I'm just gonna read through them. I'm gonna ask you to reflect. Examine your words. What does it tell you about your faith? What does it tell you about your destiny? What does it tell you about who you already are? So I want to encourage you. We often pray with our hands open, and I would encourage you, even as I read this over you, to just open your hands in your lap, in this room or in your living room, and just say, God, here, here's my words. We're going to do some inventory. Spirit, speak to me as I reflect. Speak to me over these things. Are your words lying or are they truthful? Lying, this is again a list from Todd. Lying is deliberately using our words to paint an inaccurate picture for others in order to promote a more favorable view of ourselves. Truthful then is deliberately using words to paint an accurate picture for others. Yeah, but it's just a white lie. I just didn't really want to get into it. I don't have time to tell the truth. How do we use our words? Misstating. Misstating means speaking beyond our knowledge base in order to be perceived as smarter than we actually are. Or are we regulating? Regulating means speaking within our knowledge base, not being afraid to say, I don't know. Christians, we must be truthful, we must be regulating. We must be quick to say, I don't know, but God does. Gossiping. Gossiping is sharing or listening to things about someone else in order to build an inappropriate intimacy with the person or people involved in the conversation. That never happens at church, I know, but maybe. Or are we calibrating? Calibrating is sharing or listening to things that glorify God and encourage those in the conversation as well as those to whom the conversation refers. Are we cursing, using words that ordinarily convey great eternal significance, just flippantly or cavalierly? Or do we control our tongue and use it for glorifying words that ordinarily convey great eternal significance to do exactly that? Well, that's part of what the Lord said when he said, don't use my name in vain. Recognize that my name is powerful. It's to be used for glory. All these cuss words, that they're powerful words to convey great and eternal things. The fifth one is, is swearing. Different than cursing, it's using words that ordinarily are innocuous or vulgar to uncontrollably express anger, hurt, or disdain. 
Or do we use words that ordinary, or, or are we punctuating? So not swearing, but instead are we punctuating, using words that ordinarily are innocuous to appropriately and intentionally emphasize an idea. How do we use these words? Name-calling, employing similes and metaphors to tear someone down, or are we being appropriately figurative, which means we employ similes and metaphors to build each other up. One of the things I've recognized on my journey running is that everyone, especially young students, when I clap for them, they're like, yes! But certain age men, my age men, between age of 30 and 50, we tend to wonder if you're making fun of us if you're clapping for us. Because we're so used to being torn down and being called names, and, and we miss that. The seventh one is omitting. Are we deliberately choosing not to speak in order for others to keep a more favorable view of us? I've talked to two people that are like, well, I know how I'll control my tongue. I'll never speak. That actually doesn't work either. Sometimes as Christians, we're called to speak up, which means we deliberately choose to speak in order to bring the needed clarity to a given context. Are we nagging people? Do we remind someone of something that you know that they have not forgotten? Or are we reminding people? Which is repeating something to someone that we believe they have forgotten. Are we a nagger or are we a reminder? Are we comparing people? Do we make comparisons thoughtlessly that might not be helpful? I've often joked comparison ends in sin because it always does. I know the spelling doesn't work, but who cares? Or are we encouraging people? using comparative language only when necessary to bring someone, to encourage them, to bring them up? Are we people that veil our accusations? Are we verbalizing accusations through humor and sarcasms or general assessment with the intent of diminishing the personal responsibility for the accusation? So we just joke about it. It's why people say there's a half-truth in every joke. Can that not be true? As Christians, can we not be veiling our accusations? Instead, can we candidly confront directly but stating the truth in love. And so again, I have this list of implications. Why? Because words are works. Because our words reveal who we are. They reveal our faith. And for all of us, if we read through James for every one of us, then we start to recognize something. It reveals that we're sinners that need to be saved. Amen? Every one of us. And so this is the time I want to encourage you to, to grab your communion elements. As you came in this morning, if you're in the VG living room, there were communion elements that were passed out to you that you could pick up. I want to encourage you to hold those, and, and we're going to have a moment of reflection. Really, these last couple of minutes has been a moment of repentance, and I want to encourage you to, to hold these as we sing this song of God's glory, because the question is, are we using our words for his glory or for our own? And so examine your heart as we reflect and as we sing these words together. And then we're going to take these elements all together at the end of this song. Let's sing this together right now.